And turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We'll be reading starting in verse 10 to the end of the chapter into chapter 13, verse 4. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see the wondrous things that your word contains, that we would see the truth of how great our God is, and that we would see the beauty and the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you, Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts this morning? Those who do not know you would be drawn to salvation, and those of us who by your grace have been drawn into salvation through faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ would be strengthened and encouraged so that we might continue to press forward in this pilgrimage that you have called us to as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister and that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I want to ask this question this morning as we start to look at this passage. Has anyone in this room ever completely blown it bad? I mean, just, you know, it was like... You were set up perfectly to succeed, and you absolutely failed miserably. That's kind of what we have in this passage. I mean, we come out of chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, and we look at Abram, and it's like God calls him out. He tells him, Abram, I love you so much, not because of anything you've done, but because I've decided to love you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make kings come from your loins. You're going to be great nations, and all the nations of the earth, because of you, will be blessed. I'm going to make you a great name. And then chapter 12, verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram is set up to blow it bad. And he does. Now, I want you to think about that and think about, have you been here? The pressure of life just got to you. All these things happen. There's an economic crisis in Washington. Your 401k has become a 201k or less. (laughs) 
all the things of life, food, gas, everything else keeps going up and down and you never know how to keep your budget in check. Sound familiar? That's kind of where Abram was. There was a famine in the land so bad that he had to leave. And I want you to begin to think about when we get into those kind of circumstances, do we find ourselves all of a sudden fearing the circumstances, fearing people rather than fearing the Lord? Because see, that is what happens here with Abram. He loses sight of his God. And as a result, he puts himself and the promises of God in jeopardy, at least from an earthly standpoint. What we need to look as we look at this passage is how God allows circumstances and our fear of man more often than not to drive us to himself even though we're allowing those things to drive us away from Him. What we're going to see in this passage is something profound. While Abram's circumstances are overwhelming him and his fear of what man can do to him is what ultimately is driving him, God is not affected by those things. And so as we begin to unpack this, I've kind of already told you the punchline from the beginning, but I hope that by the time we're done, you'll realize, wow, the punchline is way more fantastic than I ever thought it could be. So let's look. We're going to look at three points this morning. The dilemma, the deliverance, and the faithfulness. Here's the dilemma. There's a famine. We've already stated that. And so what we see here is that Abram packs up his family and they head off into Egypt. And apparently the famine was significant enough that the text actually tells you that he went to sojourn there, which means he didn't just go down there for a mini vacation. He went there and had some plans on staying there for a while. Things weren't going to get better for a good long while. So I don't want to act like somehow, you know, Abram's just this fly-by-night kind of guy that, you know, at the first sign of trouble, he's off and running. That's really not the case at all. The famine was severe, so severe that Abram, as a man who understood the land and how it operated, realized we won't be able to come back here for a while. The land just will not support us. It won't support the animals. It won't support food for ourselves or for the animals. This famine is wiping everything out in the land of promise. And so he leaves to go and sojourn in Egypt. And so there's a dilemma here. The text then tells us that when he was about to enter Egypt, this is where Abram begins to go awry. Circumstances have forced him to make some decisions he hadn't planned on But now he starts to let what possibly could happen start to drive what does happen. And I want us to think about how often we find ourselves in the same place. We start to think about, well, you know, people do this, and they're like this, and this happens, and that happens, and we need to make plans, and we need to make sure we've got everything covered, only to find that through all our hard work, something slips through the cracks. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here in this dilemma. What Abram is thinking about doing is, this is how he's processing. Okay, what generally happens in this time and space, evidently, and we see him constantly, this is one story. We know that there's two other stories similar to this. Abram goes into Gerar, and he and Abimelech have this same type of episode, and we know that his son Isaac has the same kind of episode with one of Abimelech's children, 
who's also called Abimelech. Pharaoh, Pharaoh keeps going down. Abimelech's sort of the title. The point is, is that this keeps happening. Obviously, the scriptures are trying to get us to impress this into our minds because this situation happens again and again in a very short period of time. The fear of man is a great difficulty, a great peril that God's people face rather than the fear of the Lord. Because Scripture constantly admonishes us to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And what I want us to see here is Abram starts to think about, here's the circumstances in the land. These Egyptians will see you, and they'll see that you're just a smoking hottie, and they'll ax me. That was for all of you young people, so that you see, you know, that's, that's the translation. Sarah's beautiful. Now, probably not by our standards. Okay, so the, I want you to think about this. Sarah's 65 years old, but the way that people looked at beauty back then would make many women in our society rise up and cheer. The point is that when they saw Sarah, they looked at her and said, this is a healthy woman. She's beautiful. Any man would be delighted to have her as part of his entourage. So Abram's not completely wrong in thinking in his mind, I could be at risk because what's the easiest way to get to Sarah if they're married? Off him and you get her. But do you understand that what really Abram was hoping to do by becoming her brother was not to let her get married. He hoped by being her brother that he could prolong any type of engagement. So if people wanted to marry her, they'd have to go through him as her head and he could navigate the waters and keep prolonging this and prolonging this and prolonging this so that he'd get a lot of benefits and all this other stuff would go away and he could, by the time they got ready to leave, they could leave and they could once again act married once they got out of Egypt after they'd sojourned for a while. That was his plan. Sounds pretty good. What he had anticipated was that Pharaoh was going to hear about her and as the king of the land say, hey, if she's your sister, I want her. And so she's taken in. They see the dilemma. I want you to think about this. We often face situations just like this. We're trying to think our way through. Here are all the different angles that this thing could go. And we're trying to posture ourselves in the best possible place so that we can kind of hold on to everything and keep everything, the ship steadied and right. There's only one problem with that. Where's God in the middle of that? See, where is... Abram saying, God has made strong promises to you and I, Sarah. So as we enter Egypt, we're going to put our faith in him. Whatever happens, we know that his love and care for us is great. That doesn't mean you don't make sensible decisions. It is to say that if Abram was really trusting in the Lord to care for him and to keep his promises sure he would not have abandoned his wife so carelessly. The other part of the dilemma is, is that he actually put Sarah in a hard way. Commentators are split on what they think happened to Sarah. 
There are many scholars who believe that Sarah actually was defiled, that Pharaoh actually did sleep with her, and that that's why the plagues come. Others say, no, the plagues come to keep that from happening. I'll let you decide which one you think. Either way, the bottom line here is is that Abram exposes his wife. Rather than being someone who could care for her, which I believe was his intent, I believe him saying, tell them I'm your brother, was to protect her. But we see ultimately it was to protect himself. Now Calvin, in a desire to spare Abram and to really bolster him up, says, Abram was believing in the promises of God so strongly and knew that the promises had to come through him, that he was willing to put everything else at risk to spare himself. I usually agree with John, not on this one. I think John Calvin is too strongly trying to spare Abram from the reality that Abram just blew it. He failed as a husband. He failed as a Christian. He just failed. He blew it completely. What I want you to first see in the dilemma is Abraham the father of the faithful, whose name is prominent in Hebrews 11, who Paul gives a whole chapter to and continues to refer back to him, the starter of the whole nation of Israel, and the one to whom we look to and say, Father Abraham blew it as bad as any of us could ever blow it. And I want you to see that. Not so you can say, hey, let's go out and blow it so we can be like Abraham. That's not the lesson to take away from here. But rather it is to say, if and when I blow it, if I find myself in these very kinds of dilemmas, I'm not alone. I'm not the first person to have God make great promises to and completely forget them and blow it. It's not unheard of. It's actually something that happens far too frequently in the scriptures for us to ignore it. I want us to think about this. Fear is something that plagues us continuously. And God is often using our circumstances and our fear of man to reveal in us what we're trusting in. If God didn't bring us to places where we were exposed, we'd never realize, I've set up an idol I'm trusting in rather than the Lord. I'm fearing other people and they're driving me rather than the Lord. And I want you to understand this, men and women. If you're afraid of circumstances or you're afraid of other people, and by fear I mean you're trusting in them. It's not just afraid of them, afraid of what they'll do to you. You put your trust in them. If my husband thinks well of me, life will be good. If my boss thinks I'm a valued worker, then life is good. If I am having my children's praise, then I know that I'm being a good parent. If, 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 See, God is constantly using circumstances to force us to realize you're trusting in other things than the Lord. Because see, what the Lord tells us is, you in my eyes are pleasing. So if we start to look for other things to please us, or to say we're pleasing, notice we've set up an idol that is not the Lord. That's the dilemma. We have erected high places just as surely as the Old Testament Israelites used to erect high places to go and worship other gods because they weren't sure that their God was going to completely seal the deal for them. We do the same thing. If I can just reach this measure 
of economic security, I know we'll be okay. I think a lot of people right now are being exposed to what they're trusting in. Where is our hope really? As Christians, we must not trade in fear, but rather in the hope that God brings to his people, despite their present circumstances. Too often we trade in fear. We can't let this person become president because if they become president, all hell's going to break loose. I think the only person that can let hell break loose is God. McCain and Barack have no such power. And neither does Nancy Pelosi. And neither do the judges in the Supreme Court. Only God has that kind of power. And we need to be people that believe that. Wall Street doesn't control us. God controls Wall Street. We really need to be people that believe that. Because we struggle right there. That's right where we are. Wrestling. Concerned. Did I say you shouldn't vote? Did I say you shouldn't be wise in how you invest your money? Did I say, no, you should do all those things. But where are you trusting? What is the dilemma that God is bringing into your lives that is exposing you're not trusting Him? And how are you going to respond? Let's see what happens in the rest of the story. Here then we see the deliverance. One of the most astounding things that, sh that should amaze you is, is that as these plagues start happening to Pharaoh, you should immediately in your mind start to say, Pharaoh didn't do anything. He said it was his sister. I blessed him like crazy. I gave him camels and donkeys. And at this time, camels were a rare. They had not been domesticated broadly. So to get camels was the sign of great favor. Not many people had camels. And even the great kings would only have a few. So for him to have given Abram camels meant that he had poured out wealth upon Abram untold. You need to see that. I mean, Pharaoh is doing all these things, and yet he gets plagued. Why? Go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I the Lord speaking to Abram, will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Notice he doesn't say, those who curse you, I'll curse. He says, even if they dishonor you, I will curse them. Can you imagine what it would be like if we really could get an understanding of God's favor for us as His people, that even when we blow it bad, He doesn't? That he's faithful, that he continues to bring about deliverance for Abram, even though Abram has not acted honorably towards the Lord. God is keeping his word, even the one who dishonors you. Even if he doesn't realize he's dishonoring you, I will curse. Do you understand the love that God has for Abram? Are you beginning to see the depths that it plummets? I mean, it's astounding. Abram's blowing it, and God's blessing him. Do you understand this God who passes over the rebellious acts of his possession? He does not give them what they deserve, but rather delights to show them steadfast covenant love. 
Who is a God like this? Who delivers His people even though they don't deserve it? Do you see that we're seeing that taught here? The deliverance of God comes to Abram not because Abram has done anything to warrant it. God called him out of Ur. God remained with him at Haran. God called him into the promised land. The famine comes. Abraham forgets everything it seems that God has told him. Starts relying on himself and God says, but I will remember what I promised you. I made a promise. I will not be thwarted by anybody, including Abram. What a sure promise. The Lord is also seeking to instruct Abram even as he protects him from his own folly. See, what the Lord is drawing him to and what we see happen at the end of this is that notice that the circumstances of Abram's foolishness are not completely removed from him, right? Pharaoh does call him to account and notice that Abram has nothing to say about it because he knows he was wrong. Pharaoh says, you deceived me, you lied to me. Think about this. The one who was supposed to be a blessing to the nations actually is a curse to them. Because of his folly and foolishness. He brings a plague upon them. Do you understand how bad Abram's blowing it? And how great God is in instructing him. Abram, you did something incredibly foolish. And I won't spare you from the stinging rebuke. I'm not going to keep you from understanding the circumstances of what you've done. But I'm also not going to let you fail. Not because of you, but because of me and my promises to you. And so we see that it presses forward. The Lord keeps His promises. The Lord's chosen ones, see we're learning this, the Lord's chosen ones may be frail and fraught with weakness and sinfulness, but God is not. And He's not controlled by what we do or don't do. The Lord is able to bring deliverance even in the most hopeless of circumstances. Do you see that? This is where we are. I mean, Abram should be killed. Abram should be exactly what he feared would happen to him. We kind of get to the end of this and think, so why doesn't Pharaoh kill him? And the only reason why Pharaoh doesn't kill him is because God has made such an impression in Pharaoh's mind that Pharaoh realizes to continue to mess with Abram and Sarah is to bring more plague and judgment on myself. All I can do is get them out of here and get them as far away from me as I can. And so we see that Abram, who's supposed to have the fear of the Lord, doesn't, and that by his foolishness, God begins to instruct Pharaoh in the fear of the Lord. The Lord is not a God to be toyed and messed with. He is a God who keeps His Word and is able to bring plagues and all sorts of discomfort and harm to those who oppose Him. So the last thing I want us to look at before we move on from deliverance is that we're given a view back and a view forward. The view back is this. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, what happens? It's beautiful. Satan enters the garden through a serpent and he takes captive Eve by his lies. Sort of sounds familiar here, doesn't it? We see that Abram's wife is brought into captivity. Then we see that the man and the woman, 
ultimately, or excuse me, we see that the woman is taken captive with her husband standing right there. We know it says that the man was right with her as Eve was deceived. Abram complicitly set Sarah up. And she was taken into captivity. Next we see that the man and the woman are expelled from the garden. And the interesting thing is the same word that talks about them being sent out of the garden east of Eden is the same word that's used here in this text when it says, sent him away. Same word. Sent them away. Expelled. Cast out of Egypt. Now the way it looks forward, it takes a little different road. In the Exodus, remember that Jacob and his family were threatened in Palestine with famine. And they go into Egypt to sojourn. There, we, what do we see? We see that men are put in danger, right? All the male boys are killed, and only the girls are kept safe and brought into the Egyptian household and allowed to live. Similar situation. We also see that plagues come upon the Egyptians because of their persecution of the children of Israel. And we see that the people are blessed as they walk out with great wealth. Abram's blessed with great wealth as he walks out. And finally, the people, Pharaoh there again uses this word, send them out. They were expelled from Egypt once again. So we see this idea going on here that the, that the writer Moses is trying to show, look, Abram is no better than Adam. But he's also trying to show that even if Abram is no better than Adam, and even if we fail to be faithful, God is faithful. Don't lose hope as we enter into the land of Canaan. The last thing I want us to look at then is the faithfulness of God. What we see in this passage is a relentless love of God for His people. He brings this about through suffering and conflict. And men and women, I want you to understand this. We so often as Christians fall into the temptation that what it means to be a good Christian is that life is going good. That we got plenty of money, that we got a nice house, that our family's doing well, that we don't have a lot of conflict, a lot of people around us like us, we like a lot of people, and everything's great and good and happy. But Jesus says that if we would follow Him, our lives are going to be a lot like His. And we don't like to hear that. So when there's a famine in the land, the first thing we do is go, what in the world is going on here? When there's a famine in our heart, why in the world am I having problems? Why in the world is there conflict? Why in the world are these things happening to me? And the reason why they're happening to you is, as we said before, so that you might see that through this suffering, you might grow in the fear of the Lord. See, the point, men and women, is, is that we think somehow that if God would just favor us and allow everything to go good, that we would grow in the fear of the Lord. The problem is, it often has the very opposite effect in us. Remember the warning to the children of Israel when they entered the land in Deuteronomy. When you get in there and you begin to drink out of cisterns you didn't dig, and you begin to eat off fruit trees you didn't plant, and you begin to reap the fruit of the vine that you did not plant, and you get all the wheat that you did not sow, and you live in cities that you did not build, beware lest you forget that the Lord brought you out of Egypt by His mighty hand. And men and women, they did. 
and men and women, we do. We do forget. We do. And so the Lord brings difficult circumstances and suffering and frustrations into our lives so that we would see clearly that it is He and He alone that is our great hope. That it is He alone who is able to heal us and to care for us and to nurture us and to cherish us that nothing else will do for us what He can and does do for us. And this is the very difficulty that we see happening with Abram. And while we look forward to the exodus from this passage, we know ultimately that this is looking for a greater faithfulness because God promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abram. And we know ultimately that that blessing was realized in Jesus. And as we look, we see that the great truth of the gospel is this. And see, we see it in this passage. Abram and all his children are so bad that Jesus has to come and die for them. Do you see that? See, if you don't see how bad Abram blows it, you, you miss the whole point of the gospel. The gospel is that nobody is able to do it right. Not even Abram. Not even Moses. Not even Joshua. Or Samson. Or Isaiah. Or any of them. They all fail. What we need is someone who won't fail. What we need to see is that we really are bad. And we need a Savior who will come and die for us even while we are enemies, even while we don't love Him and care for Him. We need that kind of person. And that's what we see in Jesus. The second thing is that we see here is that Jesus loved us, that God loves Abram so much He's willing to die for him. And He's willing to die for us. In fact, he was. That's exactly what he did. Now, Paul sums this whole idea up in God's faithfulness in Romans 5. And I, I want you just to listen to what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, listen to what he says. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you hear it? God loves us so much that He refuses to let us just go through, coasting through life, believing that everything's okay when it's not. That we really are trusting Him when we're not. He loves us so much that He exposes us so that we will be able to turn to Him and to know His love for us. In conclusion, then, I want you to see this. These are the, these are the walking home points, if you will. The Lord covers our shame, protects us from danger, and accepts us knowing full well the depths of our sin and the greatness of our weakness. Do you understand that? Abraham shamed himself and God covered him. Loved him. Accepted him. Knowing full well that Abram was capable of doing such things. 
Secondly, he calls us to grow in our fear of him rather than anything else because this enables us to care for others more and need them less. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. When you really get your eyes fixed on the Lord, you quit worrying about what other people think about you. And you start loving and caring about them because you need them less because you've got God. And if you've got God, you don't need anybody else. So see, the whole point here is if we really want to love other people, if we really want to care about other people, we have to stop caring so much about them and what they think about us. More about what God thinks and what He thinks about us and thinks about them so that we're able to love them and care for them. When we don't love others, it's a sheer sign that we're not trusting the Lord. We're fearing man. And finally, it frees us not only to have hope for ourselves, but to bring hope to others. See, when we really do get a hold of what's being taught here in this passage, we begin to become people who go, even if I screw up, even if I blow it royally, He will not abandon me. Even when I'm not faithful, He is. See, those are the kind of promises that we can take to the bank, the bank of heaven. And nothing, nothing can shrink that account. It's secure. It's safe. It's sure. And when we keep our hope there, the Lord of hope enables us to press forward even in the midst of difficult, trying circumstances. May God help us to make that so in our lives and in our midst, we pray. Amen.